Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this podcast, which is far less consistent in the off-season, is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinion. Today is November 15th, 2017, and this is episode 221. My name is Jake English. And I'm Scott Magnus. On today's show, we look back at the end of what was the 2017 season. And we'll also look towards the off-season and cope with the impending lack of news. And we'll do all that right after we lubricate the show. That's right, it's time for the Drink of the Week. Scott Magnus, what are you drinking this week? Jake, uh, we are going to have to pull into uh, the cornucopia of tricks to get any content into this podcast. So uh, we are going to have to pull a little magic out of our hats. So I decided to go to a, uh, a, a seasonal beverage, as you were, from Southern Tier Brewing Company, it is called a Warlock, and it is an Imperial Stout. Jake, it is right there with one of your favorites. It's an ale brewed with pumpkin and pumpkin pie spice. Oh, boy. What a beer. Ugh. I have to be honest. I was terrified when you said in order to get content, you had to pull something out of your hat, and that was a Warlock. Yes. Um, I went for a beer I'd never had. my D20, and oh, look at that. I saved my reflex save. We're in good shape. Nice. I, I don't have perception. Um, so I I went for a beer I had never had before. I tried a Foxy seasonal IPA from the Union Craft Brewing Company. Um, no, this is not doing it for me. I'm not. I'm not a fan. Heavy piney notes in any way, yeah. shape, or form. So it looks like they basically scraped up a bunch of leaves off the ground. Right. I feel like I fell over and and got a mouthful of the fall. Yeah. Not not a big fan. But please tell us what you are drinking this fall or winter or whatever it is that we're in, and uh, and join us uh, socially. We we drink on Untapped. You can find uh, me at Jake E four zero two five, and you can find me at M A G N eight six zero six. Now, Scotty, a little housekeeping okay um people have asked us so it's time for a checkup <laughs> it's time for a checkup people have asked us what our schedule will be now that it's the off season we do this every year um and and basically the answer is that we we don't know <laughs> we know that we we can tell you this bird's eye view will at least be a monthly podcast until february um if something happens and we decide to get together a little more frequently yeah so be it but if not hey we warned you monthly uh, once spring training starts, we'll probably go to bi-weekly and maybe start weekly shows again once the season begins. Basically, if something happens, we'll get together and talk about it. Between now and then, you may get occasional blogs. Uh, you may get a short audio clip for one or the both of us. Uh, who knows? So monthly, that that's what we got. Frankly, this is much better than last offseason where basically we weren't even talking to each other because I was in free agency. So. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that, that we don't have a contract issue looming over our head this week. Um, <clears throat> what do you say we uh, we skip the pleasantries of the Disney cartoons and go directly to this week on the Twitters? 140 characters or less. Um, let's acknowledge first the elephant in the room and the elephant that is twice as big as it was when we last recorded the episode. This one comes from uh, MLB Gifts at MLB Gifts. It's when someone uses all hashtag 280 characters, and it is a gif of Buck Showalter kind of throwing his hands up in disgust. Okay, so let me ask you this: Are you pro 280? Are you te- team 280 or are you team 140? Jake, why do we have to live in a world of extremes? Why can't we just say 
sometimes you're only going to need six characters. Sometimes all you're going to need is a GIF. But occasionally, it is nice to have 280 characters. So you're team 280. I'm team... I I like having the option. See, I'm not team 280. I, I just feel like... Social media is self-indulgent enough sure. that, that, frankly, any ability of mine to ramble on and on and on, to just fill space All right, with moving my... to the next tweet. Um, we have a tweet here from, uh, oh, it's from Jeff Sullivan, baseball. Um, so you're saying the Orioles system is stacked with future Cy Young winners, Jeff Sullivan. Congratulations on Cy Young number two to Corey Kluber who six years ago was a 25-year-old with a 5.56 ERA in AAA. Don't we have like 10 of those? Tyler Wilson and Mike Wright going to be your next Cy Young winner. All right. Uh, This this is a tweet that I find interesting. Very, very interesting to see Miami trying to unload a mega contract. Hmm. I wonder why they could be doing such a thing. This is a tweet from John Morosi, who tweets at John Morosi. Giancarlo Stanton trade development, colon. Sources say multiple teams told Hashtag Marlins that Stanton's contract, 10 years, $295 million, is roughly what he'd receive in the open market. Thus, Hashtag Marlins, we need to include cash in order to obtain high-level prospects. Hmm. Why would Miami be trying to offload a two to three hundred million dollar contract? I just I can't I can't imagine because they're losing money. No, oh, there's that too. Yeah. Um. So I, I came across this tweet and I have to ask the question: Are you new here? New here? And it's to Dan Zimbrowski. You can follow him at D Zimbrowski. There's literally no team that shouldn't be making the max posting bid for Otani. It's baseball version of washing your hands before doing open heart surgery. Yeah, except, uh, you know, the Orioles are Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. I was going <laughs> to say, they, they don't do open-heart su- yeah. surgery. They just take D- the leg. Dan Duquette literally goes into the GM meetings and says, Hi, everybody! And they're like, Hi, Dan. <laughs> well, we we can count on a few things, and our friends over at Utah Street Report, uh, who tweet, of course, at Utah ST report made us aware of that. The tweet is as follows. Now that it's officially the offseason, here's a reminder of what's up on the board at the warehouse. It's a Baltimore Orioles decision-making flow chart, which cannot be verbally described. Um, it is as nonsensical in your imagination as it is here on the page. So we need 280 characters to describe it. No. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, never too soon to start playing. This tweet comes from Eduardo Encina at Eddie in the Yard. Hashtag Orioles announced that FanFest will take place January 27, 2018 at the Baltimore Convention Center. I wonder if there will be a Ravens playoff game that will conflict with it. <laughs> too I, soon? I love me some FanFest. It's, <laughs> it's, it's my, uh, it's the return of all good things. It's the step to try to just get through the winter. It's Absolutely. Like, it's the aspect of I'm close enough to get through it that I can see the end at the light of the tunnel. And especially it being back in January as opposed to December yes. is definitely the way it should always be. The next tweet comes directly from the horse's mouth, the Baltimore Orioles, who tweet, of course, at Orioles. On the 5th of November, they tweeted out saying, 100 days until pitchers and catchers report. Make your plans to join us in Sarasota this spring with a link to Orioles.com slash spring. Emoji baseball, emoji palm tree. So we're going to Sarasota this spring? You know what that means. 100 days, 10 days ago. That means we're down to 90 days, Scott. So we're going to Sarasota this spring? 
How does Siesta Key see that sound to you? Amazing. Amazing. Probably can't swing it. It would be, be unpopular on the home front. Let's put it that way. Oh, that is the common trend in the, in the English household. <laughs> All right. Our last tweet goes into it hurts worse when he says it. This tweet comes from at Parker Sports, Alex Parker. Here at the at Kids Peace Trigger Trot, Buck jokingly asked today's runner, runner if any of them are left-handed pitchers. Hashtag Orioles, hashtag Birdland. I actually think that Buck was serious here. Yeah, I do. Too. Can we can we hear the sound? Because I, I believe I believe there's audio. I, I believe there's audio. Um, let me pull it up really quickly and see if we can make this work. Anybody here that's left-handed breathing, come see me. And we'll talk about it, okay? And I'm serious. I think you you are too. So. Uh, Ouch. That <laughs> hurts my soul because he's not kidding. Donnie Hart is literally in the audience saying, Buck, I'm right here. <laughs> poor oh, Donnie Hart. Poor Donnie Hart. But not really. No, not at all. Well, Scotty, I, this, the fact that we waited so long, I think, is a good thing. Because looking back at the off year, that the season that was 2017 may have had a different tone if we had done that anywhere near the end of the season. Let's play some music and come back and take a look back. So, Scotty... Before we take a look at the Orioles, let's take a look back at the 2017 season league-wide. Um, did you watch the World Series this year? I did. I did, too. I watched a lot of it, and I, I usually don't because I'm usually too pissed at baseball. I, I would say I also watched a lot of the playoffs in general, um, I, but I definitely watched a lot of the World Series. I was kind of really stoked to see whoever came out of that, and I didn't really have a rooting interest one way or the other. I just wanted to see good baseball, and I, I certainly saw, thought we all saw that. Okay. So you were rooting for nobody in particular? Nobody in particular. I could have been perfectly happy to see the Dodgers win. Could have been perfectly happy to see the Astros win. Whatever came out, great. Well, make it happen. Here's what I was fascinated by. It is really enjoyable to watch a good baseball game, a well-played good baseball game between two very talented teams with the highest stakes when you have absolutely zero rooting interest. And, And here's why. When the Orioles returned to the playoffs in 2012, I spent the entire wild card game against the Rangers in near vomit. I mean, just just the ulcer forming through that whole game. And the Orioles were like comfortably like five to one or something. There was a period of time where when looking back, yeah. I'm like, oh, we were kind of ahead in that game. But all throughout that game, I thought I was going to puke all over Josh's uh, carpet. Yeah. Watching great baseball when it doesn't hurt you is kind of nice. Sure. I mean, I think to a certain regard, when it's your team, the stress level is unimaginable. Um, I think we've seen that for uh, 2012, 2014, and 2016. Um, even though we only saw one game in 2016, uh, that game alone, going through extra innings with the mm-hmm. whole Zach Burton situation, um, was a, a playoff microcosm in just one game is the best way to describe it. Um, but yes, it was absolutely fun to watch the Dodgers and Astros, two really great teams. Um, in fact, again, the first time that two 100-win teams had actually played each other in World Series since the 1970 World Series where the uh, Reds and the Orioles played um, and the Orioles came out victorious. So um, 
really, really fun series to watch. Um, ebbs and flows, ups and downs, comebacks here, um, and just really exciting game. Only comment I would always make is, and this is always the case with the World Series, is those games went so late at night. Oh, I mean, sure. Yeah. Most, some of those games did not end till 1 o'clock in the morning. And I, I just, there's got to be a better way to get the, more a mass audience to see those games. Yeah. I mean, you, you're dealing with time zones. You're dealing with bedtime. It's, 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 it's tough. There, it's a no-win situation regardless because it's a situation of you say, okay, but we want to move it up on the East Coast. Then you're kind of screwing over the West Coast folks as well. So, but again... Uh, great baseball. It was everything that you expect from, you know, that series going into it. Um, it just felt right. And congratulations to the Astros who, you know, uh, basically went through a long rebuild process and finally came out and um, got the championship for the first time for their organization. So I was I was having this discussion with my wife during the series. Um, I feel like a seven game win when the teams are are going back and forth is a I don't know, more of a quality win, a more or more satisfying win than just coming out and blowing somebody's doors off in four games. I mean, what do you think? Um, I would agree with you. I think if the Orioles were to get to the World Series, I would have wanted them to go seven games as opposed to four games and win that series. If it was my team, I wouldn't get. I wouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> if it was my team, I would not care. But uh, what, well, let me, the thing about you, you mentioned that the, that the series had it all. I thought Game Five had it all, and here's a really yeah, Game Five was amazing. Here's a really disappointing thing. Yeah, I missed it. Mm. I didn't watch that game. Yeah, but here's the funny thing: we've got a gentleman that works with me that doesn't baseball. Like he just does not know baseball, but he grew up in L.A., um, and so he had a, a reason to watch the World Series. And I came into work the next day, and he said, "Oh my gosh, did you see the game last night?" I said, "No, I didn't. I didn't see it. I you know I tuned in, and the Dodgers were ahead, and I just I turned it off." And so he told me about the game. And the cool thing was to listen to somebody who's unfamiliar with the game describe such an incredible game, such sure. a noteworthy game. It was almost like not not like watching the game through the eyes of a child or something like that, but the the enthusiasm that he brought to the discussion because he you know, he doesn't take for granted the things that that we who watch baseball all the time take for granted. It really made me realize that game 5 is why people fall in love with baseball. Sure. It, it's the ups and downs and it's the unpredictability of the beast. Um, but absolutely a great series. I think we can kind of just leave it at that. All right. So the last thing I want to say about the season sure. or the series rather goes into the next topic, which is this. The series was interesting because it, it, as much as it was a contest between two good teams, it was also a contest between two schools of thought on how to build a contender. You you mentioned the, the uh, Astros rebuilt. It, it's the pocketbook or the tank, right? The Dodgers had an incredible budget for many years, whereas the Astros went into a, a harsh rebuild and basically tanked until they had what they need to, to compete. Sure. So, again, I, I've been uh, discussing with a friend of mine, uh, Chris. Uh, he is a Cardinals fan, and he hates the Astros, right? Okay. And he hates the Cubs. And he's been saying that over the last two years, the World Series winners have been people who have tanked, and what a dishonorable practice that is. Now, I ask you, is tanking an acceptable strategy in baseball? No. Why not? Um, San Diego Padres. <laughs> okay. It comes back to, you know, you can tank and you can be as bad as possible and you can continue to get prospects. But again, it always comes back down to is how good your scouting is and, again, how well your player development is. You can have some great draft picks. And the Orioles did it for a long period of time. But then you looked at the draft picks they selected and how they developed them mm -hmm. and – uh, there was nobody that was coming up through it. So you look at organizations such as the Padres, the Athletics, 
Um, the Phillies, I guess, to a certain regard as well, would be a good example. The Mets is another great example too. Um, and they don't have the individuals within the organization that uh, allow them to basically uh, achieve success through the ability to tank. The only thing that tanking does for you really is to get prospects. And if you're going to get prospects, you better be able to refine and basically get them up to the caliber that they need to be. I think it comes back to the reason the Astros were successful is because they put people into their front office that um, were um, very smart and were taking advantage of various strategies that were not accepted by the marketplace, you know, five, six, six years ago. And that comes back to the situation of if you look at who they hired, they went out and hired several years ago, a lot of baseball prospectus individuals, um, a lot of sabermetricians, um, and they went out and basically said, we're going to try a bunch of different things and whatever works, we're going to basically go in that direction and hope it pays out. Um, but they also invested in, you know, international free agent spending and they said, what? I know. And uh, so tanking will not solve all your problems. Can it help? Sure. But it's not the only way to succeed. Yeah, I I, I hope that tanking won't be, you know, the new norm. But I, I will say, uh, I agree on the face of it that it sucks for fans uh, when, when, a, when a team tanks. But I also kind of understand from the business standpoint of we don't have a winner here. We don't have a winner here. Why bother to throw bad money after a season? Self-respect is not something that fans care about. Fans care about winning. And if we're not going to win anyway, we might as well not you know, go out and sign uh, players just to put butts in the seats when we know it's not going to build a winner. Instead, let's put that money into player development. Instead, let's put that money into the international draft. Instead, let's save up so that we can re-sign a guy like Manny Machado in five years or whatever it is. Sure. Or I, I th- you can just say, we're going to tank. We're not going to spend money. We're going to get the revenue share that we're supposed to be allocated to us by Major League Baseball. And then we're eventually going to sell the team to Derek Jeter and Associates for a hefty sum. You're right. You're right. It is definitely a situation rife with abuse. It is very easy to be abused. It could be abused, but it comes back to the situation of if it was as simple as I can tank and get to a World Series mm-hmm. – no, it's not not that's not the case. Is there any way to legislate against that though? Um, like legislate against tanking? I mean, you could come back and say if we're not going to put a salary cap in from a maximum standpoint, you're going to put a minimum salary cap in there. Yeah, but you're, I think a floor only works with a ceiling, right? Uh, I'm not arguing that. You could come back and say uh, anybody that has previously been part of the Orioles front office in terms of scouting <laughs> is no longer allowed to work in Major League Baseball. I I like that rule just because. Um, you could have a situation where uh, whoever finishes in the bottom five of Major League Baseball immediately gets demoted to the International League and the top five within the International gets brought to Major League Baseball. So you could easily see the Toledo Med- Mud Hens playing in Major League Baseball in the near future. I like that a lot. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think there's a really good way Because I think the it. Orioles have a chance <laughs> in the Eastern League. They really do. Yeah, so, no, there's no really good way to, to fix this given scenario. And, and I don't think it's going to be a rampant situation because, honestly, I, I think people are blowing this out of, out of the water. Sure. All right. So let's talk about the Orioles. All right. Um because this is an Orioles podcast. Yeah, right? what what can we say about the Orioles season now that enough time has passed for the pain to have dulled? Um, All right, so the big thing is we came into September, yeah, and we had a fighting chance. We we're right there yeah. in, in the pennant race, and we said, you know, it's possible that the Orioles could pull a rabbit out of their hat once again and manage to get that second wild card. Are they looking for a warlock? I am looking for a warlock, nice. but. 
uh, the team decided to go in the complete opposite direction, which is very surprising, uh, considering that this has never happened before in the Buckshaw Walter era, and basically completely collapsed. And they finished seven and, t- and twenty-one. That is like a classic Dark Ages swoon. It is a classic Dark Ages swoon. That there's no doubt about it. Um, and like I said, the team was close. They could have avoided collapse, but you know they basically said we're going to have terrible pitching and terrible hitting all at once and not even field a competitive team out there. They tanked for a month. <laughs> they tanked for a whole month. We've seen that before earlier this yeah. season. We saw it in May and June where they tanked for pretty much a six-week period. Um, unfortunately, they tanked um, right when they basically needed to be hot. And it wasn't like they could go 500 and get into a playoff spot. They needed to go you know, 600 winning percentage and um, – they went the exact opposite direction. <laughs> they won seven games. Yeah. So I mean, a twenty-one and seven would have done it, but uh, a seven and twenty-one will not do it. Well, here's the thing: um, the team was, you know, remarkably terrible at the end. Do you think that the team was terrible all along, and the run that led them to be competitive at the start of September was a fluke, or do you think the 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 utter collapse at the end was more of the aberration, and it was a okay team that just fell off the table um i I, i'm gonna say it's probably more of an okay okay team that fell off the table i don't consider this team to be a 300 winning percentage team but i also think this team was how they finished up where they were somewhere in that ballpark of a 450 to 500 team you look at the quality that you put out there in terms of pitching uh from starting pitching was absolutely awful but even the relief pitching, just in terms of the injuries and the woes that they had to go through. Mm-hmm. And then, again, offensively, it was a very meh season. I mean, I've got some numbers down here that I, I wanted I'm, to cover. I'm shocked by this. Yeah, I know. I wanted, so I'm looking at the numbers from an offensive standpoint. And everyone <laughs> is coming into this all season saying, pitching, pitching, pitching. But in reality, the offense is also in a meh situation as well. Um, the Orioles are 27th in on-base percentage, which, again, is not shocking because they don't take a lot of walks. But they're also 16th in weighted runs created plus. So again, right in the middle of the pack from Major League Baseball. Um, and we kind of come back and we're like, hey, Scope had a breakout season. Mancini had a pretty good season and it was a rookie of the year candidate. Um, but everybody else kind of took a step back. I'm going to give an honorable mention to Adam Jones because he posted a, a, a pretty decent season. He's solid as usual. Yeah, I mean, if we look at Adam Jones in 2015, he posted a 116 weighted runs created plus. 2016, he had a down swoop of 96 weighted runs career plus. And I think we had a question on the show of, is this what Adam Jones is going to be going forward? And then this season, he put up 107 weighted runs career plus, which again is not bad, but it's not great either. By the way, nobody can see this but me, but Scott Magnus is not looking at the screen as he's quoting Adam Jones's weighted runs career no, plus just, for the last three seasons. I just, I just want to give you props for being able to do that out, out of memory. It's not a problem. Um, so, I mean, you look at the entire aspect of it and you're saying, well, you know, Davis and Trumbo fell off significantly too. Um, so there's, you know, a massive hole in the middle of your lineup. But I think the big topic here has to be Manny Machado's lost season to a certain regard. And you look at Manny's numbers for the entire season and he posted, oh, let me pull this up. He posted a 102 weighted runs created plus and typically he's right around a 132 to 134 weighted runs created plus that's a massive decline i mean manny posted a 2.8 f4 season this year where typically in the past he's posted you know a six plus f4 season so not even close to the mvp numbers that he has he's seen before i have a scientific theory sure as to what happened sure 
<clears throat> Manny Machado. Yeah. And Jonathan Scope. Yeah. I believe that Jonathan Scope is a parasitic twin. Mm. Mm. All right. Jonathan Scope has a great season. Where does that war come from? Or maybe we had some uh, osmotic effects happening through the handshake process. Mm. And some of that talent came through. But more importantly, there's a really interesting article that was posted um, at the beginning of September about looking at Mini Machado and looking at it on the basis of ex-WOBA. And ex-WOBA... Ex-WOBA, if you will. So ex-WOBA is expected WOBA on the basis of StatCast data that's present. So looking at Manny Machado's ex-WOBA and eliminating the aspect of a luck basis, so assuming that, hey, everyone is going to have a neutral battle accordingly, uh, Manny Machado, on the basis of a StatCast analysis, should have been posting a 135 weighted runs created plus during the season. Now, does that go into the kind of contact he was having, the way he was driving the ball, yes. it just happened to find gloves, that kind of thing? That is correct. Okay. So if you look at the aspect of the exit velocity and the launch angle and the aspect of the hit probability and the type of hit that would normally come with that kind of exit velocity and launch angle, you basically can determine an x on this basis. So is that the BABIP dragon? Is it the fact that Manny Machado is maybe being played differently than he's been played in the past? I mean, what do you think accounts for that? I think it is the luck dragon. I think this is a situation where, um, you know, you look at how Manny was played, and I don't think that the entire league adapted a new philosophy for him. Mm -hmm. I think this was just a situation, especially at the beginning of the season, um, where we saw Manny Machado hitting a lot of hard hit balls and them ending up in gloves in the outfield and everything like that. Here's where I find this to be unsatisfying you know it, season one of bird's eye view sure you know, we talked about you know what you see versus you know with your eyes versus what you can do with stats and i've always thought that you know people that ignore stats uh, people that are resistant to a statistical outlook of baseball are missing the boat but when you have something like manny machado's lost season i like that phrase where i think we should use it a lot you look at manny machado's lost season and you can point to all the things uh, statistically that happened the results sure right and you can't and you can't derive anything else other than man he was unlucky this season i just I, i'm like i'm let down by that because i can sure. do that with my eyes dude you know i Absolutely. can i can say oh he he is still an excellent excellent player and i don't expect to see this next year i i think the big thing is and this comes back to you know the statistical aspect is you know sometimes there's no good explanation for it i mean you can have something look really good on paper but in reality, that's why you play the game. Sometimes the game basically says, hey, you know, he's doing really well, but he's just not getting those hits that he needs to. I mean, you look at him on a home run basis. He had, you know, 35, 37. This year he had 33. Again, the power is still there. You look at the walk rate. It's at 7.2 compared to 6.9 last year. 16.7K rate versus 17.2 last year. It, it, the only thing that really went downwards is the Babbitt. The Babbitt went from 309 in the previous season to 265. I'm sorry, Manny Machado is not a 265 Babbitt player. It makes no sense. It screams to me that Manny Machado had some really poor luck going on. And if that luck were to come back to the typical 300 level that we normally are used to seeing for Manny Machado, the way to runs created plus is going to come back up too. I know a lot of people have placed emphasis on the aspect of, well, you know, he didn't hit so many line drives and he was trying to loop the ball up in the air, but the numbers don't weigh out that. I mean, I'm looking at the fly ball percentage right now, 42.1% fly ball percentage in 2017, 42.7% in uh, 2016. You could look at ground ball percentage. Again, 
2017, 43.7% in 2015, and 48.6% in 2014. Manny Machado got bit by the Luck Dragon the entire season, it looks like, except for that brief period of time where he was in Fuego. Right. And that time he was the team. He was the team, exactly. So I, I do honestly think that, you know, Manny, losing Manny to a certain regard through the season, you lost four wins there in terms of F4. That's huge. That is a huge, huge loss. And again, you can't lose your best player to mediocrity and expect to still go to the playoffs. Okay. So I, I acknowledge that this was an off-season uh, offensively for the Orioles. They they did have a drop-off. But I do think that the difference between last year's team and a good team, a playoff contending team, is the pitching. Totally agree. And and, and I, I hear you that, that the offense was meh, and I do not discount it. However, when you look at the 2018 team returning, and we'll, we'll get to what we think might happen soon, but when you look at the 2018 team returning and how similar constructed, similarly constructed it will be offensively, sure, I think that that, that nucleus that's there yeah. is enough if you have pitching. Yes. And, and not even like tremendous pitching. Absolutely. If you have not nuclear waste pitching... I think that, that that'll get you where you need to the, the offense will get you where you need to so go. So I completely agree with this. And I think you also look at the situation of you had a season start out, and Dylan Bundy was great. Mm-hmm. Kevin Gossman was absolute garbage. And then it flipped halfway through the season is the best way to describe it. And you look at Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gossman, and you look at their season numbers, and you look at them in the American League, and they're not that bad. You look at Dylan Bundy, who was ranked 28th in case per nine in the American League. Kevin Gossman was 19th. Walks per nine innings, Dylan Bundy was 18th. Kevin Gossman was 34th. Ex-FIP, Dylan Bundy was 42nd. Kevin Gossman was 26th. And F-War, Dylan Bundy was 22nd. Kevin Gossman was 25th. If you could give me two starting pitchers in the American League, they're in the top 30, I'll take that in t- day for the Orioles. It's more the situation, like you mentioned, is you have to get additional pitchers to work with Kevin Gossman and Dylan Bundy. And they don't have to be top 15 starters but they have to be top 45 right. pitchers, basically, and not be Wade Miley, who was the, one of the worst pitchers in All-American League, if not the worst. They, they can't be ranked 100 through 150. Right, exactly. So, I mean, Chris Tillman, it was like negative one F4, I think, for the entire season. Um, you know, Wade Miley was awful. Jeremy Helgson was awful. Um, Abaldo Mendes was awful. Again, the Orioles don't need to do... They can't get any worse by basically by getting anybody that was worse than this. Why would you say that? They, they, Why would you say that out loud? They can't get any worse. Scott, do you have any idea the dangers of what you have just said? And unless they go with like a Miguel Castro and I don't even know. I mean, they would have to go basically just say, you know what, Tyler Wilson and Mike Wright are gonna be our fourth and fifth starter next year. Scott. Scott. Yeah. You're talking out of your butt. That's next segment. Okay, my Why bad. Why don't we my take bad. a break? Come back and then talk out of our butts. So we get to talk about Jimmy Yacobanus? Yeah. All right. All right. So I may have jumped ahead a little bit. But uh, I had to talk about Gossman and Bundy. You were premature, Scott. I was premature. premature. What can I say? 
It, the I, warlock does it to you. I, I was building up inside for all these weeks, basically, and I exploded. So Jeez. I blew myself. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to Oriole Spastic, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. There's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> so anyway, we were talking about starting pitching, and of course we talked about Gossman and Bundy, and there's three stop spots that remain. Um, so that's going to be something that has to be filled by the Baltimore Orioles. And the question, of course, is going to be, how are they going to do it is the best question. And again, there's there's options out there, even though Dan Duquette has come out and said, well, you know, it's not a great free agency class, and uh, it's pretty expensive out there. And it's like, well, Dan, every single class is going to be expensive. I got a great player. Okay. Great player on the market. Okay. Uh, somebody with which Oriole fans are familiar. Oh. Uh, someone with which the organization the squirrel. is familiar. Look, I said we bring back Jake Arrieta. Yeah, the squirrel. Did you hear that Scott Boris called him a squirrel today? No. And he called him a squirrel, and he's got a lot of nuts with him. What? This is Scott Boris's pitch to people today at the GM meetings. But look, Jake Arrieta, yeah, okay. You're definitely a top-end starter. Uh, definitely not coming back to the Baltimore. No, that bridge is burned. There's that bridge is burned underground and is swept away into the river. The river has gone underground. That has never happened. Not not going to happen. And similarly to this aspect, you Darvish is not going to happen for the Baltimore Orioles. No chance. You don't think he pitched himself into our league in the playoffs? I, I have. There is no chance that you Darvish <laughs> would even consider the Baltimore Orioles. No. Um, when he could go, he. Uh, a vast amount of other places mm-hmm. and uh, make more money and have a better career going forward. Absolutely. So the Orioles have to pray for a chance to get basically the best of the rest, right? Sure. These are, 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 are guys like Alex Cobb sure. and Lance Lynn. But I have to be honest, don't call me a pessimist, but I feel like deeper pockets than the Orioles will come a calling. See, I don't know about that because, again, we look at Alex Cobb and we're we're just the aspect of like, ooh, Alex Cobb, shiny. But there are injury concerns about Alex Cobb. I think the bigger question is, would the Orioles be willing to risk entering into a contract with an Alex Cobb um, with previous medical concerns with a Tommy John surgery attached to him? Um, But Alex Cobb is certainly in that second tier level that I think makes a lot of sense for the Baltimore Orioles going into 2018. And one of those, you know, chances that they need to take in order to make that significant jump um, to be in competition in the AL East. The Orioles have a decision to make. Sure. They with the contracts that they give out this offseason. Yeah. Are they going to win this year and rebuild? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to try to win this year and bridge through the window that's closing? Yeah. See, here's the thing. A, a guy, guys like Alex Cobb and Lance Lynn, if they demand long contracts, I don't know what the market is for these guys yet. Sure. But if Lance Lynn is a guy that is going to demand a 5-year contract because free agency is crazy. Yeah, right? Are the Orioles going to do that? Or are they going to go after a player that they say, you know what, a year, a two-year contract, the best player we can get to fit that, we're going to go out and get? I, I feel, knowing the Orioles, sure. that it's going to be the latter. And if that's the case, then I hope to God that they just overspend. Sure. And they say, we need the best player we can get at a year or two years. We're going to overspend because we've got Manny Machado. So I think the one thing that we have to give consideration to is we're, we're entering into a phase of Orioles baseball where – um, it's not like there is any depth remaining in terms of starting pitching. Uh, individuals can point to Hunter Harvey. Hunter Harvey's not ready. No I mean, way. I this no whole way. aspect that folks like Rockabaco and Steve Molesky are pointing out saying, hey, you know, Hunter Harvey is a possibility to come up and pitch for the Orioles maybe in August or September if nothing else is going on. But there's no chance in heck that Hunter Harvey is coming up and pitching for the Baltimore Orioles to begin this season. So 
And then you look at other pitchers like Chris Lee, uh, Cody Sedlock, and everything. But none of these guys are going to be starting pitchers in the next two to three years, maybe yeah. at best. So you look at that and you say, okay, if the only individual we could get up in, we'll call it 2019, so not even next year, would be a Hunter Harvey, and then you're left with Gossman and Bundy, you're going to have to have depth in here to fill out for the next two to three years. So it's going to be similar to the situation that you had with Abaldo Jimenez when you went out and signed him for a multi-year deal. You're going to say, we need to have that depth. We need to have someone in here for multiple years. Let's go get in Abaldo Jimenez and hope he's our guy. Stop saying Abaldo Jimenez. I could say Wade Miley. No. no. Yeah, I, I mean, personally, if for me, um, and of course I'm not a member of the Baltimore Orioles organization, but Alex Cobb is an easy three-year contract for me. No question about it. I'd even think about doing a fourth-year player option mm-hmm. um, and see if he would be willing to bite on that um, and just offer it to him for, you know, four years and we'll call it 12 to $14 million and see what happens uh, and, and see if he's go- willing to go for that. Yeah. What about Lance Lynn? I, I think Lance Lynn is probably a similar situation. I'd probably only give him three years. But, I mean, Lance Lynn is in a similar category as Cobb. I think just Cobb has the higher upside um, especially coming out of the AL East as well. With these two guys, um, do you think that we want them because other teams want them, or do you think we want them because we had Wade Miley? So when I when I look at a player that I want, I think to myself, well, other teams are going to want this guy too. It's not going to be that sure. easy. But looking at things objectively, are we so bad that you know media, mediocre options for for others look great to us? I think we're in a situation, too, right now where we're saying we have no depth. We have to spend it where somebody else might say, I've got this other individual that's coming up that's going to be a prospect and could come up to the majors in the next year or two. Um, Is Alex Cobb really that much better than this other individual that I can pay $500,000 to Mm -hmm. where I would have to pay Alex Cobb, you know, like I said, 12 to 14, maybe even $15 million to. And I think that's what people are bouncing again. Alex Cobb is not going to be a great pitcher. Again, he's going to be in that top 45 category. People may just say, I probably can get a top 45 starter. We, uh, you know, my prospect that's in the top 100 right now, whereas the Orioles don't really have that top 100 starting prospect. Must be nice to have that laying around. I, I do not think that either of those guys, Cobb or Lynn ends up in the Orioles. Uh, I, I wish that that's what I would do. That That's where I would go. That's but I don't I, think it's going to happen. Yeah, this gets into the whole aspect of um, best laid plans. And mm-hmm. that's something that I would hope the Orioles would do. But knowing the Orioles and how they operate their business, um, it's probably not likely. Well, these guys aren't going to be available in February. Um, so let's look at the more realistic. We, we've, we've gone uh, through the top flight. We've gone through the best of the rest. Let's go with what's laying around. Well, the one that name that came up today was Tyler Chatwood, who's a really intriguing yeah. name. Um, again, you look at his ERA, and it's at like 4.7. But in reality, if you look at some of his splits, he's got some really great splits outside of Colorado. Um, again, the walk rate last year was not great. I think it was like 4.3-ish. Um, so you would hope that would come down. Again, that was at the highest level as it has been for the entire career. But again, he's got the stuff, is the best way to describe it, where he's got that velocity, he's got that power arm. And you have to hope that that power arm would translate, especially in the AL East. And that would be your hope. And again, you know, you're hoping for a rebound. And that's a guy that you could theoretically think that, hey, maybe he's willing to sign a one or two year deal to reestablish value in an area outside of Colorado and then take a big deal elsewhere. 
Yeah, I just I worry about trying to get somebody to reestablish their value playing 81 games at Camden Yards and 19 games at Yankee Stadium and 19 year, games at Fenway and 19 games at Toronto. But everything is going to be weighted by that aspect. So if he does well against you know the loaded AL East, someone is going to pick him up in the sure. NL Central or NL West again and say, this guy is actually really, really good. And again, he's only 27 years old. So, I mean, he's still young enough where it's not like, up. Oh, he's crossed over the 30 threshold Maybe this is who it is. I considered last season with the walks a blip on the radar. I'd be all in on Tyler Chatwood. No questions asked. All right. The name, one of the names that's been assigned to the Orioles by the national media is Jason Vargas. And also in, in that category, Andrew Kashner. Sure. What do you think of guys like that? Kashner, no. Vargas depends on the dollars is the best way to describe it. Here's the deal. We've got two starting pitchers. Yeah. Two. Yep. The Orioles need three pitchers. Yep. If they go out and get somebody like an Alex Cobb or a Lance Lynn, like I would like them to, yep. then I'm okay with them going after Jason Vargas. Absolutely. Right? Then I'm okay. I, I would even be okay with the Andrew Kashner in conjunction with that. If you have top, you know three good pitchers, sure. and then you're filling the rest of it with throwing money at, at an Andrew Kashner or a Jason Vargas, right. that's a solution. Sure. Bringing in Jason Vargas and saying, gee, I hope this fixes our problem, is irresponsible. Well, it's a similar situation to going out and getting a Wade Miley or something like that saying, well, he's not very good, but he'll do, I guess. And it's just like, well, you can't just do with, well, it'll do. Again, you're entering into basically a potential final season before a a significant rebuild. You need to go all in. And again, it's a situation of, it's not like you have a lot of depth coming back for 2019. Um so, again, I would definitely look heavily and say Alex Cobb, Lance Lynn, um, Jamie Garcia, and or CeCe Sabathia are two names, too, that I think need to be considered as well. I can't do it. I cannot root for CeCe Sabathia. I can't do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not objective enough. I'm, I'm not able to be dispassionate enough to root for CeCe Sabathia. You know Sabathia. what? Go ahead and drink your beer. Oh, it's CeCe. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> That is terrible. Um, let's talk about uh, this. Is a real issue here. Okay, Miguel Castro. Sure, lots of support for putting him in the starting rotation. I say no. I don't see it. I don't see the pitch arsenal that screams to me. Yep, he can be a starting pitcher. I do see him as a great bullpen arm and can fill out the rest of the bullpen. But Miguel Castro does not strike me as a fifth starting pitcher. I'm sorry, it just is not the case. I think he might, might. Be a passable fifth starter. And when I, when I say that, I, I don't I, want I that think to be a can, slight because that, that's a valuable guy. Oh, I, but I think it's more of a situation where I think he can be a passable sixth starter. Mm. And I think it's one of those situations where you put him in the pen and then you occasionally say, hey, we need to go to you when so-and-so is on a DL stint. Mm-hmm. And again, we always talk about the aspect of depth, depth, depth. You can't just have five starters. You've got to have six or seven. Miguel Castro is the person I want to go to as that six starter or that seven starter, but I don't want him in the rotation the entire season. I, I don't want people to misunderstand. I think the fifth starter that can go five innings every fifth day has value in the mine in, in the modern MLB. But despite the fact that I think that that is a valuable position, he is gold in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. You, you beat the drum of multiple innings and this is a guy that can give you six <laughs> innings in relief and then come back the next day and give you one. And the the reason that we went to him so often is because he was effective. 
And especially when you start thinking about unloading arms in the bullpen or just realizing that some of the other arms that we had aren't going to come back, Tony Hart, we need those effective arms in the back of the bullpen and the middle of the bullpen. And Miguel Castro is exactly that guy. He is so valuable where he is. I don't want to screw with him to put him in the rotation. Sure. And again, this comes back to we consider him to be as good as gold. But let me give you a few numbers for Miguel Castro last season. He pitched 63 innings in relief. He had a 5.0 case per nine, a 3.86 walks per nine, a 1.0 uh, home runs per nine, um, an ERA of 3.29, a FIP of 4.87, an XFIP of 5.23, and most importantly, a Babbitt of 215. Something screams to me here that regression is on the way. How many innings? 63 innings in relief. Okay. All right. So, I mean, again, definitely a workhorse. No question about it. Yeah. But, you know, if we're going to scream about Miguel Castro, why are we not screaming about Richard Blyer, who, again, 63 innings, but once again, 3.69 Ks per nine, 1.85 walks per nine, um, 1.99 ERA, 4.37 ERA, and a 4.35 XFIP. Richard Blyer had a much better season than Miguel Castro, all things considering, out of the bullpen. But, again, we look at Miguel Castro and we're like, Oh, well, he pitched a few really long uh, innings there, so we think that he has a better chance of being a starting pitching. No, like Miguel Castro is still a really bad option. This is a Tyler Wilson, Mike Wright scenario written all over it, where you look at it and say, yeah, he may have had some isolated successes, but the stuff doesn't scream starting pitcher. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I am bullish, though, on Miguel Castro as a bullpen arm. I, I really am. I I do not discount the fact that he is a candidate for regression, but he, he in the put up or shut up area of last season, I think he put up and, and you have to at least say that when, when his number was called, he, he went. Um, so let's talk about the bullpen. Uh, if you look at the bullpen and the guys under contract right now, you've got Britton, O'Day, Gibbons, and Brock with three open spots. You know, we talked about Blyer, who's left-handed. Sure. We talked about Miguel Castro, who I think has to pitch his way off the team. Sure. Right. And so you've got one extra spot. Right. And and maybe I'm not thinking of somebody that's under arbitration, that's you know, out of options, you know, somebody that has to be there. Like, I know that uh, Mike Wright is in that position. Sure. You and I have talked in the past, of, gosh, if Mike Wright could just harness it, maybe he could be a, a Tommy Hunter-style uh, reliever. But the Orioles have the space for an extra arm in the bullpen. Sure. I could see them going out and getting somebody, not a mega contract, not a big deal, but somebody to bolster their bullpen. And if they're not particularly fond of Richard Blyer or confident in Richard Blyer, maybe it's going out and getting a loogie and then building around it. That's possible. I think the better option would be to say if you've got a bunch of open spots and you don't think there's going to be a significant benefit um, in terms of these from a uh, from a war standpoint, I'd Norfolk shuttle the whole thing. I'd be constantly flip-flopping those individuals back and forth, back and forth. If you know your starting pitchers are only going to get through five innings, use and abuse Norfolk Shuttle as much as possible to make it happen. Here's the thing. I don't think the Norfolk Shuttle is good enough anymore. That's a possibility, and that's a really good point. But I think it's one of those situations where the Orioles are going to uh, potentially go out and sign a bunch of AAA free agents, mm-hmm. and they're basically going to Norfolk Shuttle it up. I do think that pitchers like Adani Hart or Miguel Castro will stick around, but I, I think that on the whole, there will be two floating spots available um, in the bullpen 
and it'll go back and forth with people going back and forth all the time. I hear you. And and I think the reason I'm I'm saying go to the bullpen, first of all, I, I still remember the Jamie Walker, you know, Chad Bradford, who was the third guy. Todd Williams, whenever, whatever. I think it was a player to be named later, but <laughs> whatever year they spent, you know, $50 million in the bullpen or whatever, sure. and got Jack out of it. You don't want to do that. But at the same time, last year, the Norfolk shuttle consisted of Logan Verrett and Alec Asher and Mike Wright and Tyler Wilson and you know, Richard Blyer. And, and it just wasn't like it, it didn't hack it. It didn't hack sure. it. And part of that, I'm sure, is overuse and overexposure uh, because they couldn't deal with the fact that our, our rotation was just god awful. Maybe with a real rotation, the Norfolk shuttle is good enough. Given the fact that the stakes are so high that this is our last gasp, I think you spend the money in the bullpen. That's just me. I I can see what you're saying. It certainly wouldn't be something I would begin the offseason with. It'd be certainly something that, <laughs> well, we fixed it. I, I would certainly just say, you know, whatever comes out, and if there is anyone still out there in January or February, maybe that's something I consider. But it's certainly not where I'd be spending money to begin with. And again, this comes back to um, an issue I've had with the Baltimore Orioles with other offseasons is, They've gotten into situations with arbitration. They said, well, we don't want to make that decision, so we're going to offer arbitration. Fortunately, this season, everyone deserves arbitration. But they've given arbitration and wasted money when they didn't need to do it. I'd rather not have them waste money, even if it's a million or $2 million here or there. I'd rather them just say, we're going to Norfolk shuttle it for the time being. And if we need to go out and get someone in the future, that's a way that you could easily get it by of saying, we're going to sign someone in February that's still out there. Or it's also a situation where... If your team is in contention in June, you can go get that fringe arm. It doesn't have to be a Zach Burton type or a Brad Brock type or anything like that. It could be someone that just gives you a little bit of innings, and that should come out pretty easily um, for you know a pretty not, not a great prospect. Definitely not a top 100 prospect. I, I hear you, and I agree with you. Uh, from 2015 on, I would say that the Orioles have been cavalier about their dead money. Yes. But here's a question for you. Sure. Let me just play devil's advocate, and I'm not Jim Hunter in this scenario. Aren't you— I will not donate to the Catholic Archdiocese. Aren't you glad that the Orioles are willing to eat dead money Yes, rather than putting out crap on the field? Uh, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad that they are willing to eat dead money and not send a ball to Jimenez and Wade Miley out there on the field every single game. All right, you got me. Let's talk. Let's talk the position players. Uh, let's start the infield with a discussion of the catchers. Um, look, this conversation's done, by the way. We don't even have to have this conversation. The answer is Caleb Joseph and Chancisco uh, are going to be your catchers next year. And, and you're fine with that? I'm fine with that. I'm okay. perfectly fine with that. Caleb Joseph and Chancisco are a great tandem. Great tandem. You saw enough from Chancisco to be convinced? I saw enough from Chancisco to be a, a, a perfectly fine backup catcher. And more importantly, I saw enough from Chancisco to be a bat that could come off the bench occasionally and hit. Okay. I'm not convinced. I don't, I don't think catcher is a huge area of need because, again, meh. And you can't have all-stars in every position. And if our catching tandem is weak, particularly at the plate, I'm okay with that. But let me just say this. In Major League Baseball, in the free agent market this year, you can either go out and get a Jonathan Lucroy and and finish your your catcher need forever, right, mm -hmm. with some long-term, I don't know, $17 million a year solution. Or you can go and get 
something that's, you know, a, a stopgap until you're more sure about Cisco. And a guy like that would be something like a Nick Hundley, like we did several years ago. Sure. Maybe an Alex Avila. Avila. I don't, I'm not advocating either one of those guys. All I'm saying is that I wouldn't blame the Orioles if they weren't sure about Cisco yet. I, I agree with you that we'll probably look at a, a Joseph Cisco tandem, but it wouldn't break my heart if they went out and got a decent, not good, but acceptable, you know, barely least uh, amount of acceptable catcher to tandem with uh, with Joseph to then be able to bring up Cisco to replace somebody that wasn't uh, producing rather than having to depend on that. The that's only all. one I would consider would be Alex Avila. That's yeah. the only one. And that and I still think that's a situation where I'd rather spend my money elsewhere. Okay. All right. Um, I have some bad news for you. Okay. I don't think this team b- brings back Brian Flaherty. No. Brian Flaherty is gone unless he's willing to set, accept a $500,000 deal. Yeah. Which I, I like him. Be. I like him. And, and I think he, he's a very valuable guy. I think he is too expensive for the Orioles. Agree. Because they are so set in the infield. You have um you have Chris Davis who I'll say it and, and you know I am so disappointed they signed him to that contract. I I would not have done it. And I don't want to sound like a Chris Davis defender, but I like him. And and that have, when having, he was signed, you said I would have preferred that he to put the money into a different place, but I understand why they had to do it and I under and I also will appreciate the aspect of when he hits home runs. And to this date, I still feel that same way that you did, which is Every single time he cranks the ball out to the bleachers, I get super excited and super stoked. And then I see him basically swing and miss for three weeks straight. And I'm like, man, it'd be really nice to have a better player. It was the wrong contract, but we're stuck with it. Right. But he does play, I'll say, damn near gold glove caliber first base. I'm going to disagree here. Okay. I I, I, I will defend that standpoint I, I will give him credit that he does a decent job with the scooping but what i will say is if you looked at chris davis throughout last year his defensive range was not what it was in previous seasons okay let watching chris davis all i could think was thank god he defends because otherwise he would have given us nothing that is true that is absolutely true but it comes back to I don't consider him to be a gold glove first baseman. You can look at other first basemen out there from a defensive range standpoint, and there are much better first basemen out there from a defensive range standpoint. He does an excellent job of scooping balls out of the dirt. But past that, I, I don't consider him to be a gold glove first what about, baseman. What about uh, Davis as a initiator of the double play? Uh, in the rare instances that he does that, yes, he does a nice job with that. Okay. So that's a very good job by the coaches to teach him how to pull a double play. Let's put this one on the board. Let's just watch his defensive uh, performance this year. Let's let's talk about that through sure. the 2018 season because sure. I, I think it, it's worth discussion. We will put it under the hashtag the Chris Davis watch. <laughs> and uh, we will look at plays uh, where Chris Davis uh, plays exceptionally well or exceptionally poor on a defensive basis because I think uh, Chris Davis is sometimes – overrated by the Birdland faithful. Hmm. All right. So in the infield, you've got uh, Davis, who I'm calling a plus-plus defender, and, and you're not. That's fine. Jonathan Scope, who is going to be back regardless of what his defense looks like. Tim Beckham is going to be your starting shortstop. Manny Machado, that's a, a, that's a pretty stocked infield. So whatever utility infielder they bring in, I don't care. You forgot one, by the way. Who would I forget? I forgot Mark Trumbo. <laughs> no you laugh mark trump is gonna play first base this year 
Stop it. Um, yeah, he might. I could see that. He's going to platoon with Davis. Yeah, so they they need to then uh, bring in a, a utility infielder. I have confidence that uh, Dan Duquette will bring in somebody that will be useful. Sure. So uh, there was a great article um, written by uh, CamdenChat.com um, in the past week, um, and there is a uh, individual that the Orioles drafted about a year and a half ago. Um, his name is Steve Wilkerson. He's posting up some really nice numbers in the uh, Arizona Fall League, 316, 379, 561. Uh, he could be that individual that fills that utility gap for a very cheap cost. But I, I I think also I look at this and I say, this seems like a prime spot where the Orioles will dabble in the Rule 5 once again. Mm. Let, me, uh, let me just escalate this one step further. Sure. What about Steve Pierce? Nope. He's not leaving Toronto. Womp womp. Yeah. All right. Eduardo Nunez is out there. He'd be a super <laughs> utility player. But yeah. again, I don't think we want to pay him the money that he is going to be getting. No. If we can't afford Ryan Flaherty, we certainly can't afford Nunez. That's right. All right, so the infield, I, I think they're set. Uh, the outfield is interesting. The outfield, I think, is the biggest question mark moving forward. This is 2015 all over again. Yes. It's Jones and the other guys. And yes. they And they can do one of two things. Yes. They can half-ass it. They can, they can hope and pray and throw stuff against the wall and hope it sticks. Or they can go out and get a real solution in the, in the corner outfield and not have to worry about it. So... Jones, like done deal, right? We we know that Jones is good, but I don't believe that Jones is a hundred and fifty game player anymore. He is not, and I think that Jones is. I think Jones knows that too. Well, we talked about this a couple of seasons ago during the prediction show. I can't remember how long ago this was, but I made the point that if Jones can manage his own ego, he can forever be a useful player in Major League Baseball. Sure. And if Jones can manage his ego and say, I'm not a 150-game player in center field anymore, right? DH me a little bit, let me play center, and eventually he's going to need to move to the corners. But we're not – even if we're there yet, the Orioles won't do it yet. But Jones is going to play center field. But it also requires that you have a fourth outfielder that plays a lot. Sure. Let's move into left field. I think that Trey Mancini has cemented himself there in left field because, one, his bat – will overcome any shortcomings that he has in the field. And two, I know he's not a star out there, but I don't think that Mancini hurts the Orioles playing left field. Um, all right, let's, so let's go back to this. Trey Mancini was much better in the outfield than all of us expected. Let's just, let's put that right down. Right. I was expecting an absolute train wreck, a, a Mark Reynolds S situation on the outfield. And Trey Mancini certainly was not terrible on the outfield. The big question lies coming back to the 2015 argument, which is if you're going to put somebody out there like a Trey Mancini, you better than heck better have someone that's a really good outfielder out there in right field to cover for it so that Jones is not covering three positions at his age. So Trey Mancini is not an outfielder. Jones is going to have to scooch to Mancini's side a little bit to basically cover for Mancini who can't get to every single ball. That is a technical term. Scooch, yes. Um, but then doesn't he, he play second base? This comes back to what Jones has said, like back in the day, like it's like, hey, Marcakis was my guy. Like I could rely on him to, you know, get to the balls that I knew he could get to because he was super athletic and had great range. But again, there was an understanding between the two, and I don't feel again that the there was ever an understanding between the right fielders and the left fielders with Jones. So there has to come to some kind of understanding. But we're willing to accept faults in the field when the bat makes up for it i mean this is luke scott all over again 
it it is Luke Scott somewhat up again. Um, what I would say though is you look at Trey Mancini and you look at his numbers and they were good this year, but they weren't great. Like we're talking, you know, we say, oh, Trey Mancini had this gangbuster year. He had a one seventeen weighted runs created plus. Seth Smith had a one oh six weighted runs created plus. I mean, this is there's a difference there, but it's not a significant difference here. Right. But what what I'm saying is this. As a rookie, and regression is an absolute possibility. Absolutely. Let's let's just I mean, you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not trumpeting this. We could guy. have a Nolan Rymel going on once again. Oh, please stop that. <laughs> Trey, Trey Mancini, as a rookie, had a one seventeen weighted runs created plus, which means that he was seventeen percent better than your standard player, mm-hmm. right? Offensively. For seventeen percent more at the plate, I think you deal with whatever less he gives you in the field. So by this aspect, if you had um, a Hanley Ramirez, for example, who posted like a 130 weighted runs created plus, you're okay with putting like a Hanley Ramirez out in left field? Not on this team. Okay. <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying. I, there, I, there is a... There is, I don't think that, that Mancini is as bad as Ramirez is in the No, field. he was not. He, okay. he was not. But again, there is always a cutoff threshold. What I would be saying is if... Um, if Trey Mancini was posting a 130 weighted runs created plus, I would be seeing a completely different soon. There's a player that used to do this who played a very similar position to Trey Mancini, Steve Pierce, who we mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the show. When he was in that 2014 series season, he posted a 130 weighted runs created plus, and I thought he had a defensive performance that was very similar to that of a Trey Mancini. But again, Steve Pierce was a better offensive performer than Trey Mancini. Folks, I know we love his mom, and I know we like to see her dance around, but Trey Mancini is just meh. He's, he's okay, but he's not great. I don't think he has to be great to win the I mean, left his field mom spot. is great. His mom is great. Yes. But I don't think he has to be great to win the left field spot. I agree with you. I, this comes back to the argument that I've always made is you don't need a bunch of superstars, but you need some above-average players. Mm-hmm. But the superstars need to perform. Right. And you need to get it from Manny. You need to get it from Jones. You need to get it from Scope. You need to you need to have Beckham not play out of his mind like he did last year, but you need him to be present. You need Davis not to fall off the planet. So my aspect from the from the offense is you need Machado to post an MVP like season again, six plus four. Mm-hmm. You need Davis to post an all a, a somewhat all star season where he's going to be posting someone in the ballpark of a three plus war season. You need Scope to plus post a two plus war season. You need uh, Trumbo to post a positive season. It doesn't even have to be a great season, just a positive season. And you need um, Beckham to post, you know, a one to one, two war three. season as well. If you start getting all those adding up, you're just like, okay, this team is good. I still come back to there is a major fallacy in the outfield, and that is we still don't have a defense to make up for Adam Jones. Adam Jones looked like he did better, but again, he started to lose range as the season went along. If if the Orioles could go out and get defense. I think that's what solidifies the team. Again, we're always going to look back at the 2014 season. What did the 2014 season have? It had defense. The Orioles. Please do not say David Lowe. I, I didn't. I'm not actually going to say David Lowe, but the Orioles during the 2014 season had a uh, number one defense in all of Major League Baseball during that season. Um, you look at the outfield defense at that time, and in 2014, it was 10.9 UZR over 150. And that was top in the American League at that time. Since that, the Orioles continue to worsen and worsen and worsen. And in this past season, with Trey Mancini and Seth Smith and the various cornucopia of individuals that you put out there, 
The Orioles were had a negative 4.7 UZR per 150, good for 14th in American League. You know what the difference is. What was the difference? No Delman Young. Uh, the difference was Adam Jones is getting older, and Adam Jones is not getting to all those balls. So my question is, who are we going to go out and get that is going to be able to get to all those balls? Well, before we talk about who we're going to go out and get, let's talk about what we've got. Sure. Okay. Uh, the Orioles made a a effort to get a uh, to keep a Rule Five player. Sure. In Joey Rickard. Yes. It's not where you thought I was going, <laughs> but we'll get there. Yes. Joey Rickard. I don't believe is a major league baseball player. That is correct. Okay. So let's just throw that out. Yes. So Rule Five. Sure. Here we go for reals. Uh, what do you think about Anthony Santander? I think does he make the team? Anthony Santander definitely makes the team. There's no question about that. Is it because his bat plays in the majors, or is it because he has something to offer defensively? Oh, there's nothing. He doesn't offer anything defensively. It's just the bat, and it's going to be the question of is the bat going to play enough where he can be a solid fourth or fifth outfielder? He'll be a Delman Young esque character, basically, in terms of performance. And again, he may serve as a very interesting pinch hitting back coming off the bench. But that's about it. If I'm the Orioles, I trade for him. I, I work with it. Was it Cleveland or Boston that he came from? I think it was Cleveland. I think it was Cleveland. I work out a deal with Cleveland so that I have the ability to send him to the minors. This is interesting. I reached out to someone that I know um, that works at Baseball Perspectives that knows somebody within the Cleveland organization. I was told that there is no chance in the world that Cleveland will trade for, will trade for him because they want him back in the organization. <laughs> and they're going to put as much onus on the Orioles to have to carry him as they can. I don't understand the Rule 5 requirements as well as I need to for this conversation. He was hurt a lot. He played a handful of games. How yeah. long do the Orioles need to keep him to keep that Rule 5? I, I don't know the exact game number. I can probably pull it up, mm-hmm. but something, something like 37 games. Okay, they can do that. Right. That's fine. So, so he doesn't have to be through the whole season. It has to be through 37 games. So mid-May-ish is, yeah. I think, what they the number I had. Down. They can send him down. Okay, good. So he's going to remain in the organization. We've talked about uh, Rickard. Austin Hayes. Austin the Hayes. golden child Austin of Hayes September. Is, is the big question that everyone doesn't know what to do with Austin Hayes. And again, I, I think it's interesting looking at Austin Hayes. He had made some really nice plays in the outfield. But you look at him at the plate at the, at the end of last season— 217, 238, 317. Certainly not someone that screams to me of saying, hey, this guy can handle it in the in MLB. Now, maybe he'll come out in spring training, have a gangbuster season. Um, but again, I think Austin Hayes could serve a lot with having a, a little bit more time to ferment in the minors. I don't think he's ready, period. Yes. But if you're if you were point is we need more defense and and from what i just heard you say i think you believe in hayes defense sure if what we need is defense are you content to let his bat grow at the major league level to take advantage of that defensive capability no because i still don't think that his defense is good enough where i want to uh, risk the entire aspect of the 2018 season and again you're also getting into a situation where hypothetically you're leaving the 2018 season. Adam Jones does not sign a contract with the Baltimore Orioles. He walks away. Who's your center fielder? I don't see Austin Hayes being that center fielder. You need to start looking for potentially another center fielder from a depth standpoint. Okay. Uh, last internal candidate for making the team in the outfield, Cedric Mullins. <laughs> 
cute. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, I, I don't think he makes an impact in 2018. I think the only way Cedric Mullins makes an impact is if he has one of those Trey Mancini like spring trainings and Buck's just like, I got to reward him by bringing him up. I think that's the only way that Cedric Mullins gets up, but I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I have a player in free agency. I want to go get, Okay, but I want to hear you. What did what do the Orioles need in the off do you, in, in the outfield? So we're going to do the aspect of who do you want the Orioles to go get? Let's let's go with that. This hurts me. Yes, I want them to go get Lorenzo Cain. Lorenzo Cain makes so much sense for the Baltimore. Orioles. This is the person that couldn't stomach the idea of CC Zabathia. Twenty fourteen would haunt me just about every day, but I think Lorenzo Cain is the player the Orioles need. Lorenzo Cain is the Dexter Fowler type mm-hmm. player mm-hmm. that the Orioles missed out on. I would do about anything to sign Lorenzo Kane. Scott, I've seen you do a lot of bad things. When you say you'd do anything, that is meaningful. I would put down significant money if I were the Baltimore Orioles on a Lorenzo Kane. Like if if it's starting pitching, a Lorenzo Kane is just one tier below Everything he hits everything that you want for someone in this in this in this lineup. He has the ability to bat at the very top of the order. He brings you defense. He can sub out with Jones for center field if necessary. Lorenzo Kane should be signed to a four to five year deal immediately by the Baltimore Orioles. No question in my mind. And again, it allows that conversation to be held to Jones of saying, "Hey, on occasion we want you to DH." Or, hey, on occasion. Do you mind moving out to the corner outfield for a game or two so you can take it easy? And again, let's just let's look at this. Lorenzo Kane's defense is stellar. Lorenzo Kane is is stellar. Again, great arm, decent range. More importantly, are also bringing the on base percentage, which the team needs as well. Well, and that's where I'm getting to because 2014 Wade runs created plus 109. 2015 128. To, uh, 2016, 99, but again in 2017, back up over 100 at 115. And this is a guy who's played 133, 140, 100 in an injured season and 155 games. This is a guy who posts up. This is a guy who plays defense like nobody's business. And as we just talked about, a guy that can fill a lot of roles in the lineup to which there's not a huge drop-off when an Adam Jones needs to take a, a game off. If you look at Lorenzo Kane. And you look at his numbers in terms of walk rates, strikeout rates. You look at his defensive aspects. He's a super version of Nick Marcakis is the best way to describe it. For everybody that bemoans the aspect of the Baltimore Orioles walking away from Nick Marcakis, Lorenzo Kane would offer them a retribution off of losing Nick Marcakis. No, I, th- I think this is the Nick Marcakis we thought we were getting, mm. right? And, and So pitcher. Ha- <laughs> a left-handed pitcher, yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Lorenzo Cain is my guy. I, I, Again, I hate saying that, but I, that's what I want them 31 to 31 years old, which would be the only consideration that you may want to give to it. But again, I'd be willing to give him four to five years yeah, immediately. Because I, I think that in his in elder statesman range, his excellent defense degrades into just good, right? I agree. I, like I said, I'm all in on Lorenzo Cain. Whatever it would take, I want Lorenzo Cain if it was possible. I, I feel like Lorenzo Kane degrades into Andy Chavez defensively. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, also out there, uh, you know, people will talk about Carlos Gonzalez. I don't see that happening. I do period. not see Carlos Gonzalez at all. Let me ask you about this. Sure. Colby Rasmus, 2.0. I do not see Colby Rasmus whatsoever on this team. Good fit or just bad contract? I, I don't like either one. I don't like the fit from the personality standpoint, and I just don't think he is a good fit. 
Um, I've got other names that I think are better options personally. I think John Jay is a really interesting mm-hmm. option. Again, not great from a defensive standpoint. I don't think it solves you. But again, from an on-base percentage, posted a 374 last season. I think John Jay is a really interesting name. Um, the BABIP is something that concerns me greatly at 368 last year. So I don't think it's going to be as good. Isn't that kind of a Seth Smith type of solution? I, I think it is. The other name that I think really makes a lot of sense, um, and you're going to hate it, but Jared Dyson is someone that the Orioles should be considering as well. I hate that as much as I hate Kane. Yeah, you know? it, it's. But you look at Jared Dyson again. He's not going to post the offensive performance that you're looking for. He's got an 85 weighted runs created plus, and he's going to be dabbling between 85 to 100. But from a defensive standpoint, if you put Jones and you put Dyson out there, it's lights out. Now the only problem with Dyson is is you're going to get into a platoon situation. But if you get into a platoon situation once again, you could say hey, we're going to leverage that and say, if Dyson is only going to be able to hit against you know right-handers, we're going to basically platoon him with a Hayes so he can mature a little bit, or even a Santander on occasion too, and be able to work it out. Kane is probably not in the cards for the Orioles from just a financial standpoint. Jared Dyson is very much more so in the ballpark from a financial standpoint for the Baltimore Orioles. If the Baltimore Orioles do want to go out and solidify their outfield defense and maybe bump up their on-base percentage a little bit, I would be looking at a two-year deal for Jared Dyson, someone in the ballpark of twelve to fifteen million dollars. All right, I'm not letting the dream go. L- let me go back to Kane. Okay, let's say the Orioles do the Kane deal. Yes. When Jones's contract comes back up in 2018, 2019. Yep. Do you think that a a Kane to center Jones to right combo for a two to three year deal makes that a better? Uh, outfield than we could have hoped for i think it's going to be one of those situations if kane is signed their or is also going to have to take a serious look in the mirror and say do we really need adam jones i think that'll be a really tough conversation for this organization moving forward but i i do think that they're going to have to say adam what what do you want and do you really think that anybody's going to pay you better than what we can offer you here yeah, I and I also think that Jones and I think Jones also saw what happened with Nick. Yeah, and I think Jones says we'll see it and say, does it really benefit me to go and play for a different team and for me to actually get out there and be unhappy? The only team that makes perfect sense for me would be him going out and playing for the San Diego Padres. But again, I, I think it would be a situation where if he does that move, he knows he's going out there and never winning a championship. And I don't know if his personality would allow that to happen. I think that he has the opportunity to send out his career to be a great Oriole. Yes. You know, and I, I think there's also something to be said there. If if I'm not going to win a world championship, right. if I'm not going to be the man, I can either be a great Oriole or I can have a Brian Roberts end of my career. Right. I, I think if Jones were to ride out his entire career with the Orioles, and now we're getting really even past this offseason, but let's just say he were to make a whole career with the Orioles. There is a good chance, and I'd have to look through the numbers, there's a good chance I bet he could be a top 10 Oriole. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. Well, on a statistical basis, I bet you he probably would come pretty close. Um, the big question at that point would be, if he's a top 10 Oriole, I know we give statues for Hall of Flame Famers, but does an exception made based off the aspect of how long a player was here? I don't think they do. But I think that you're right in the fact that if you look at Adam Jones's career and his moment in the history of the Orioles coming back to prominence, that he is an Orioles legend Absolutely. at that point. 
whether or not they build him a statue, whether or right. not he's an, uh, he's a baseball hall of famer, he is that caliber of Oriole. Sure. And for that, I say, I hope that he and the team find some arrangement to keep him here for, for the long haul, because I think that that's more important to the organization and to him than, you know, a little bit more money to go lose in Oakland or, sure. or uh, I, San Diego. I, and I kind of agree with you, like talking out to, I mean, Adam Jordan's right now, by the way, is ranked 16th in Orioles uh, franchise history with F4 at 28.8. In order to crack the top 10, he would have to cross 34.9, which I think is very reasonable for him to do. Um, but when you get into the top five, it's 41.7 with like Boog Powell, George Sisler, Eddie Murray, again, some really heavy names in there. Um, and those are just hitters, not just pitchers too. So I, again, I do think Adam Jones can, you know, be a really, really good player um, and kind of establish the entire career. But again, Adam's gonna have to make that really tough call if a player like a Lorenzo Cain and or a Jared Dyson is signed of where is my role going forward with the Baltimore Orioles. But look, if you're on the Lorenzo Cain bandwagon, I'm completely on the Lorenzo Cain bandwagon. Everyone should be on the Lorenzo Cain bandwagon. Um, again, we keep harping about starting pitching, but the defense has to improve as well. And the easiest way to do do that is by going and signing former Royals outfielders. I knew you like that. That hurts my soul. Yes. Is there anything else that we want to talk about in terms of free agency or not? So it sounds like we need to go out and sign um, three starting pitchers, regardless. It can't be two and then a, a makeshift. Um, it's got to be three. And, and one of them has to be good. And some, one of them has to be, it has to be in at least that mid to upper tier. So an Alex Cobb or a Lance Lynn. One of them has to be a pitcher other teams would yeah. want. Jason Vargas cannot be that individual as being, even if it's the Tyler Chatwood, Tyler Chatwood cannot be your number three. Tyler Chatwood can be your number four, Absolutely. but he, he cannot be your number three. Um, let me, let's finish with this one actually. And we talked about various options for to fill in, but the one name that will constantly come up this off season will be Chris Tillman. Jake, do you want Chris Tillman back with the Baltimore Orioles for the next year? Honestly, no, I don't. And the thing is, is that he's he's that's a, tough. I mean, because he's been with the organization yeah, for so long. He's had a great. I would say he's had a he's had a good career with the Orioles. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but he's had, he's had a good career with the Orioles. Sure. Um, and last year was a career low, clearly, and and I hope that Chris Tillman bounces back and becomes a you know, a, a productive player in major league baseball, but I think that time is behind him. And I think that as, as nostalgic and willing to, to deal with less than as I am with Adam Jones and, and, and some others, I am not willing to be nostalgic to the point of contract stupid with Chris Tillman. I watched this team through the dark ages, make bad offers to bad players because we knew them and because they were the best we could get. And he's not, the best that we can get. And the Orioles have a chance to be competitive this year if they do the right things. And the right things do not include Chris Tillman. So I, I would say no. Okay. I would come back and say Chris Tillman is definitely not the individual you want to go get as the third or the fourth starter. But what I would say is, again, I don't want to throw money at a bad situation. I think Chris Tillman could easily be a bad situation once again. But what I would say is, if I need an option in February for, again, that fifth or sixth starter... I'm willing to give the money to Chris Tillman, even if it is the situation where I'm saying I'm putting Chris Tillman in there as my long man in the bullpen to begin the season. I'm willing to do it from a Chris Tillman standpoint for three to $4 million. 
but that's it. I wouldn't do any more than that. If the Orioles went out and got a Lance Lynn and a Jason Vargas, then I would say yes, as a fifth starter. Yep. Chris Tillman is welcome that's what back. That's all I want it would be for as a fifth starter, and but it has to be, as we just discussed, the aspect of it, it, you have to go and get one of those top, not top-line folks like a Jake Arrieta or a Darvish, but he can be a fill-in, basically, to give you additional depth. And I'm perfectly okay with that, but again, not for much more than 3 to $4 million. Anything else we want to talk about, or have we basically belabored this point enough for, for folks? I think we're ready to blow out that save. Yeah, we're running really long, by the way, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Let's go ahead and blow it and see what happens. So, Jake, I've got a question for you. Lay it on me, Scotty. I would like to know if you're a catfish in disguise. Um, not to my knowledge. So, Jake, uh, you have to have seen the story where uh, there is a baseball fan turned writer named Becca Schultz who is presenting herself online as Ryan Schultz and had worked at various baseball publications online and had falsified her identity for uh, quite some time now, basically. And uh, it, it came out and... Um, apparently it was, there was a the whole catfish scenario going on here where someone was assuming an identity and basically using it to their benefit to basically trash and tear down people online accordingly. Here's the thing. Like, it's so sad that a 13-year-old girl at the time thought that in order to break it into baseball that she needed to be a man. But it is even more depressing that she thought that she needed to be an absolute douche yes. to pass as a man. Like, in our culture right now, the fact that that is what a female thought she needed to project to project masculinity is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And again, it leads into a situation of um, it's interesting to see uh, the dynamics of, I guess, the baseball blogosphere and the whole aspect of talking about the culture. And I certainly feel like we here at Bird's Eye View are always one of those situations where we are open and can self-reflect and basically call out when we do something stupid here. But Jake, I have to ask you this question. Do you believe, if you had to name someone, do you think anybody is catfishing within the Birdland Twitter sphere? <laughs> <laughs> this is really great. Um, yes. Yes, I do. Who do you think is catfishing? Despite the fact that I have met him in person, I think Dave Stevenson is a catfish. Oh. And this is why his his clinging to this sour beer business. Oh, that's a good one. It, it it just brings his credibility so low that I think that he may be a Russian bot. All right. So this that's a good call. Um, another one. And again, he follows hockey. I mean, who really follows hockey? Uh, another, again, Russian bot. Again, we've met this individual. But again, I believe this is just a fake persona. Mark Brown at Camden Chat could easily be a catfish. There's no question in my mind. Nobody out there can post so many articles to one site and keep up with the proliferation of traffic of various authors, such as a catfish. Here's the thing, though. I think it's deeper than that. Okay. I, th I think that the madness is deeper than what you're giving credit for. Mark Brown is a real guy, because we've met him, right? A good dude. Allegedly. But the thing is, online Mark Brown, I think, is many people. Ooh. I think it takes a village to eat more SK. I think that Mark and... And, you know, the, the multiplicity of marks build up the online persona. 
the We're other, on to you, Mr. Brown. The most obvious one has to be, though, would be Dan Clark. Dan Clark is the most obvious catfish out there in Birdland, right? Do they have catfish in Australia? This is a good question. <laughs> Folks, if you think we missed on a name that might be catfishing out there on the Orioles' Birdosphere and or Twitter, hit us up at BirdseyeViewBAL with the hashtag catfish, and we'll look into it deeper this offseason. Scotty, this is excellent work. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this thing up because we have really drawn this out. We probably should go back to weekly shows so these episodes don't go so long. And that, and that is our show. Remember, you can find this and our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. Bird's Eye View is available for download wherever it is possible to get your podcast, including uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and many others. Please go and subscribe to us there so that you can catch our show on the monthly basis that it is produced at this moment. <laughs> Please remember to rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback, and it encourages other people to listen for the first time, unfortunately. We love meeting new people and talking Orioles baseball with diehard fans. Email us at contact at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat, but the best way to get a hold of us is on Twitter, where we tweet at birdseyeviewbal. And 280 characters or less. I guess we have to change that on for this week on the Twitters, don't we? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm definitely not Team 280. Hashtag Team 280. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond adieu-adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, folks. It's been a pleasure talking to you once again. For the nine hours we've been doing it. Yes. You're not having catfish for Thanksgiving, are you? Meow. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.